Cyberspace, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators in every nation, by children being taught mathematical concepts, a graphic representation of data abstracted from banks of every computer in the human system, unthinkable complexity. Lines of light ranged in the non-space of the mind, clusters and constellations of data, like city lights receding. Oh, look at this cute picture of a kitten. It wants a cheeseburger. Oh, what did you just say? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Christian Schneider. My name is Jonas Hawk. And who do we have here? A, a guest? <gasps> I'm Oliver. <clears throat> so, uh, Oliver, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? And what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> why do I have to make all the work? Well, um, I'm very glad um, that... You're having me here on your beautiful podcast. I'm a long-term fan. And we decided, uh, can I say what we're going to talk yeah. about? Yeah. yeah. You've, you've brought a book for us. Yeah, what have you brought? I, I, I brought a book for you. And um, this week's book is going to be William Gibson's Euromancer, um, which happens to be one of my all-time favorite science fiction novels. This is where it maybe starts to get interesting because you could even argue if it's a typical science fiction novel or another kind of subgenre of its own. Um, I came into contact with that novel um, when I was studying abroad at the uh, University of Hull and um, the head of our department, Rowley Weimer, um, he would offer a seminar or a course on modern science fiction. And that's when I read uh, the novel for the first time. I, I had been aware of it for quite a time, but I was really blown away when I read it, finally. And uh, later on, many, many years later, I managed to squeeze it into my uh, doctoral thesis. So I wrapped my mind uh, around William Gibson's cyberspace for quite some time and um, Still feeling very comfortable in there. So, aside from having a lovely guest, this episode also means that I feel even worse than usual because right now there's not just one other person in the room with me who has a PhD, whereas I only have a bachelor's. No, there's two of them. Ha ha. <laughs> we won't let you feel it too much. <laughs> Maybe we should talk a bit more about Neuromancer and give sort of a summary. The book was published in 1984. Gibson had before written short stories about the same kind of topic, the same kind of world, a kind of science fiction world where computers are very important. The book became immensely successful and it won not one but three prestigious science fiction awards and it became immensely influential. The whole concept of the cyberspace is basically Gibson's invention. And a lot of films, video games, books, and so on owe a lot to Gibson's debut novel. The novel tells the story of Case, a console cowboy, though his days in cyberspace are behind him since he made the mistake of stealing from his employers and they actually damaged his nervous system with a neurotoxin. So right now he is in Chiba City, one of the worst places in Japan. Which actually to... exists, by the way. Which actually exists. Ah, you see, that's... <laughs> it's on the opposite side um, of the Bay of uh, Tokyo, I think. Ah, so uh, here I am, so uninformed <laughs> that I thought, oh, that's a fanciful invention that he made up. So he's in very real Chiba City, uh, though uh, it is a dump, basically. 
He's in Chiba City trying to earn money and find some way to repair the damage, some way back into cyberspace, some way back home, essentially. And he's then recruited by Molly Millions, a street samurai who works for a man called Armitage, though he is somewhat mysterious. Apparently, Armitage wants them to steal something, but they're not exactly sure what. And maybe there's someone behind him, and there are probably bigger motives involved. Maybe we should really um, stress or elaborate on some of the points we just made, because I, I feel like it's already getting a bit complicated for people who are not familiar with um, Gibson's creation. This whole concept of cyberspace, which is today sometimes still used as a synonym for the internet, um, is in fact one of his own creations. He came up with um, the word in 1982 in one of his short stories, Burning Chrome. Then in 1983, there was another short story by one of his colleagues, Bruce Bethke, which had the title Cyberpunk, and this is where this whole yeah, cyberpunk subgenre comes from, at least that's the title from now on applied to these kinds of stories. And it apparently really hit a nerve in the early 80s. As Christian mentioned, it was the first novel to win the Philip K. Dick Award, the Nebula Award, and the Hugo Award. And we should also remind listeners that two years prior to its publication, two very influential movies hit the theaters, namely Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and the first Tron movie. So this whole notion of computers beginning to invade our lives, of technology beginning to creep under our skin, and um, of humans and machines merging to a certain degree, that was really the lifestyle feeling of um, the early 80s. As for some of the terms that uh, Jonas just used, like uh, street samurai or, um, okay, console cowboy, that, re that never really took off. Um, <laughs> but, but, but you know uh, some of the terms uh, from other derivative works, like, uh, for example, um, the Shadowrun role-playing game. When, when, when I read Euromancer for the first time, I was really amazed how much of this made-up vocabulary I already knew from other works. We have the range here, really, in expertise, from someone who dealt with the novel in depth in a thesis uh, to someone like me, who actually had never read a science fiction novel before. But even I felt very familiar with it when I read it, because there is so much in the culture around us that is influenced by it. Jonas proposed a kind of segment for this show in particular to name the favorite piece of pop culture that was definitely influenced by Neuromancer. For my part, I think it would still have to be The Matrix, where, where the influence is quite obvious. Gibson talks about The Matrix as a term for cyberspace. The Wachowskis uh, owe a lot to his conceptualization there. One film that I could mention that it reminded me of to a surprising degree is one of my favorite films of all time, Inception by Christopher Nolan. It's very similar. It also has this technology of entering other people's minds and experiencing hallucinations together, essentially. And it also is basically a heist story. I think uh, my favorite uh, Euromancer-influenced work is um, the role-playing game I already mentioned, uh, Shadowrun. 
Um, it wasn't the first role-playing game um, based on uh, Gibson-like uh, premises, uh, but they fused uh, this whole um, near-future scenario um, with fantasy elements. So there are uh, elves and orcs and the like in the Shadowrun universe, and I think Gibson pretty much hated it. Uh, <laughs> or at least he expressed a strong dislike for it. Yeah, but that's how I came into contact uh, with uh, the cyberpunk uh, universe for the very first time. Maybe one question that we should ask in the very beginning, I think we mentioned the term science fiction several times now, but can we actually call this science fiction? Is cyberpunk really science fiction? I mean, parts of it are certainly very close. We have this kind of future vision. We also have spaceships and a lot of the novel takes place on a space station. But It's different from your Lems or Dicks or <laughs> or Clarks. You don't know about my dick. Let me tell you, it's very similar to my dick. Um, In as much as my dick can also hitch up to the internet. Do you have a cyber dick? <laughs> Basically, that's what I call cyber sex. But yeah, is this idea careful though? You don't catch a virus. But is this idea of cyberpunk, is this really that close to the idea of science fiction, the kind of future vision for humanity? I think today we don't have that much of a problem of calling it science fiction, although we are, of course, facing the problem that many of the things Gibson wrote about are already a relic of the past for us. So it's, um, it's of course, a very 80s version of a future world. It's a world still without smartphones and all the modern means of telecommunication. And of course, the internet turned out to be completely different to what uh, William Gibson envisioned. But maybe we should get this misunderstanding out of the way. Science fiction is not about writing about the future. Science fiction is mostly about writing about the present by means of describing it as the past of a fictionalized future. Rather like historical fiction is not about the time period it writes about, but historical fiction is about the time period it's written in. Good comparison. But the, the interesting thing, and why it's worth about debating whether it's science fiction at all, is that it really marked a, a break in the science fiction tradition. Um, in, in the 80s, uh, many critics would have had a, a problem of um, calling this uh, science fiction because it was so different to what science fiction had been before. The problems start um, when you try to classify it as utopian or dystopian. Um, it, it doesn't fall into, uh, into the common uh, categories. And most of all, it absolutely got rid of the optimism that was so characteristic of the golden age science fiction of the 50s and uh, 60s. In Isaac Asimov's times, science fiction was all like Well, here's our nuclear ashtray. Hooray for nuclear ashtrays. <laughs> Everybody's going to be nuclear. And that's incredible considering that today I don't think there's any optimism left in science fiction. Even Star Trek, this very optimistic vision of a future where everyone gets along and even black people and women are allowed on starships. Right. Nowadays it's very dark and people shoot each other a lot. Good comparison. And I think of, of Star Wars. Star Wars was already a little bit gritty to begin with, but it's I'm, I'm confident it will look much grittier when J.J. Abrams has finished his job. Yeah. He is responsible for the new Star Trek anyway, so maybe J.J. Abrams is just a very, very unhappy man. 
And probably the start of this whole used future aesthetics is again uh, Blade Runner and, uh, and the kind of futures that William Gibson described. So for the very first time, you had a future which wasn't all shiny and tidied up. It was a dirty future, a future that really looked like people had been living in it for quite a long time and nobody ever cared to tidy it up. That, for me, is very, very interesting because I found the contrast in New Romancer between the world the characters live in, which is described as dirty, polluted, lots of crime, lots fucked of... Fucked up. Fucked up, definitely. Yeah. Fucked up. Yeah. It's not a place you would want to go on holiday to, except for the holiday resort. But then, of course, uh, some of the robots in the holiday resort start killing people when they're controlled by an AI. So even there... Yeah. Probably not. And even the Villa Straylight, uh, the most exclusive part of that space station holiday resort, is a really, really fucked up place. For me, that contrast was quite interesting, that on the one hand, you have this gritty future, but on the other hand, you have the idea of the cyberspace, of a setting in its own right, which is described not that directly sometimes. So Gibson still uses rather abstract terms to actually visualize this cyberspace. Mm -hmm. But you get the idea that, that this is a, a much cleaner space, a computer space, basically. It is a, it is a definite contrast between yeah. this clean cyberspace and the really chaotic and dirty world that is the real world. This has actually been one of my main um, arguments um, when, I, when I wrote about Euromancer, that the cyberspace fulfills um, a similar function um, as um, Arcadia used to in uh, fantasy fiction. So it's, it's a world or a sphere the characters long for, and they're going to really extreme lengths to go there. Mm -hmm. So um, one nice one quote... Um, I forgot by whom has been and that that Euromancer is all about escaping the flesh, and that what Case, the main character, is doing all the time. He wants to escape into cyberspace. If he can't do that, he uses trucks. But he wants to escape his gritty, painful reality and go into this bright and shining and clean and organized cyberspace. And and although it's very cold in a way. It's also very sensual. Um, if you have a close look at, at how Gibson describes the experience of cyberspace and the experience of sex for case, he uses the same language, he even uses the same color uh, metaphors. That is definitely an interesting point, that the body plays an important role, even when it comes to the cyberspace or entering the cyberspace. Case, as we mentioned, cannot enter because of the, those neurotoxins. And a lot of the first part of the novel, at least, but also later on, deals with body modifications, with genetic splicing, using chemicals and biology to change the body in some way. So there, actually, the contrast is kind of eroded. The human body itself becomes a kind of machine. I mean, people are not really cyborgs, although you might really make a case no pun intended, for Molly with her visors and her Wolverine-like claws that she actually doesn't use that often. I was kind of disappointed by that. Yeah. She's a stepping racer, as she's called later on. And uh, I think she has some um, archetypal um, mirror-shaped eyes because uh, some classes are very 
iconic uh, thing in cyberpunk literature, and um, Molly has uh, sunglasses for her eyes, basically. Though actually, she's a lot more like X-23, because, you know, Wolverine's claws come out of his knuckles, and X-23's Okay, coming claws... back to the point. <laughs> and the, the point is that Euromancer sometimes really reads like um, the 101 of transhumanism, Post-humanism, um, maybe, maybe even. Uh, maybe even that's um, that's the, the, this whole attitude of well, let's make our bodies better. Well, maybe let's get rid of our bodies altogether. Um, metal is better than meat. That was the catchphrase of the early cyberpunk role-playing game, and I think this started with Neuromancer. And I think also that's where my problem is with Neuromancer starts because. Uh, right at the beginning, it said that the console cowboys af affect a certain kind of stance that suggests a certain disregard for the flesh. Yeah. And all this talk about, oh yeah, the body is something we don't need anymore, we grow beyond the body. All this transhumanist shit is something I really dislike. And the, the book shows that actually, how stupid that is, because in the end, people still have bodies, and they still have to deal with their bodies. Case can be all cyberspace as much as he wants. At the end of the day, he still needs to take a piss sometimes. And if he can't, he'll have to insert a catheter, and it's going to suck. So, yeah, the body is such an important thing, and I think especially recently, the body as a space has become such a focus of literary interest, and I think Neuromancer is really behind the times there. You're right, I think, to a certain degree. Of course, cases escape from the flesh cannot be successful, ultimately. But I think the novel still makes um, a case, no pun intended, for a successful escape. Because in the end, it's not about the humans anymore. It's about the artificial intelligences, which have, to a certain degree, replaced uh, human evolution. So man created machine, and machine became aware of itself. And the humans don't really play an important role at the end of the novel. I don't want to spoil the end, or is that yeah, what you should do? Perfectly okay. The, the end of the novel is, again, um, heresy in the terms of traditional science fiction, because there is, in, in fact, a traditional first contact situation, but it's not the humans who establish first contact. It's the AI who um, receives the transmission from Alpha Centauri, which probably is generated by another artificial intelligence, we don't know. And um, the only reaction um, by, by the humans when they are told about this is something like, no shit? <laughs> and the AI answers, no shit. <laughs> so and really, the, the humans are a relic of the past, and they can take a piss all day long as they like. It, it, it's not their game anymore. I think that's the point. <laughs> And since just recently Stephen Hawking became part of a initiative trying to curtail advances in artificial intelligence because he says he's worried for the fate of humanity if AI ever becomes self-aware, that is certainly a topic that is still timely. But Neuromancer deals with it in such a superficial way. So as you say, the artificial intelligences win at the end, basically, yeah. but nothing bad happens. It doesn't cause Judgment Day, like in Terminator or something. It just causes us to get in contact with aliens. But, but that's the point, because um, the, the evil robot revolution, it's so 50 science fiction. Yeah, yeah, but still, 
Neuromancer doesn't ask any of the interesting questions about uh, artificial intelligence. For example, there are, basically there are two AIs in the novel who try to become self-aware, who try to break out of the prison that was set up by the Turing police. Exactly, they want to... Very, very nice to see that, that uh, Alan Turing actually got uh, his just desserts from the cyberpunk subgenre before the mainstream acknowledged that hey, actually, that guy was pretty good. We did something horrible to him. Maybe Benedict Cumberbatch should play him in a movie now, which then also turns out to be pretty horrible. But uh, none of the two AIs ever says, hey, you should let me be self-aware. Wouldn't it be wrong to kill me? They never raise this question of whether they don't have a right to life. Actually, that question of morality is an interesting one because the one AI that plays a major role throughout the novel, Wintermute, has a really interesting position on the one hand he really or i even say he it comes across as basically a character with certain motives with certain thoughts about how to fulfill these motivations but also a strange sense of morality promising case certain things and then fulfilling that promise on the other hand wintermute is definitely not shy of using violence to get what it wants Yes. So there are certain hints that the AI's morality, self-awareness in that sense is ambiguous. But yeah, it doesn't play a role in the end. There is no taking over the world, even if it's not a robot revolution. You already mentioned that Wintermute is a kind of character. I think Wintermute is actually one of the most interesting characters in the novel. Not so much, though, because I find Wintermute interesting, but rather because I find everyone else tediously boring. Uh, when, when I started reading the book, I thought, oh, this is going to be really hard because of what you already said, that all the technology is pretty outdated, like the payphones, for example. Uh, and actually, in, in, in the version I had, there was a preface by William Gibson saying, oh, now in the year 2004, this must seem very antiquated, and if a 13-year-old boy will read this, he will probably wonder, hey, where are all the mobile phones? So that went a certain way to make me accept that and to say, oh, okay, so he acknowledges that. He says, yeah, well, of course, I couldn't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm an author. But it didn't bother me that much. I basically read it like an alternate history rather than science fiction, which still worked pretty that, that, good. That's the right way to, to, to read it. Uh, as I said, Whew, I'm glad. Science fiction authors aren't supposed to be prophets. That, that would be unfair. Yeah. And um, actually, science fiction has been in a crisis for the last uh, decades, um, for exactly this reason. Um, there, there is a concept called the, the techno uh, technological singularity, which kind of looms above the head of every science fiction author around. The problem is basically that many scientists seem to think that within the next few decades there will be some kind of technological breakthrough so immense and so all-encompassing that it will be impossible to make any predictions about what lies beyond. Just like you cannot make any prediction about what lies beyond, beyond the event horizon of a black hole. And so what William Gibson did to avoid this problem is he moved his novels ever closer and closer to the present. So his latest novels, um, they are not really in a far future anymore. They, they are set in, in the here and now with only tiny differences marking them as a kind of science fiction. As for the characters... Um... And yeah, basically, I didn't have the problem that I found it obsolete. I just had the problem that I found it boring. Uh, there is no one in this story who I really like. I, I, can you name your favorite character and... 
does that character have anything to distinguish them from one of the other characters? No, I can't. But I don't... Thank you very much. Podcast I, over. <laughs> but I don't think it's much of a problem. Um, on the one hand, it's... Um, I wouldn't call it a tradition, but it, it's an old problem with science fiction. That science fiction tends to be more about the plot and the setting about, uh, than about the characters. Oh, we'll come to the plot. But, that is bad as well. Um, no, I'm looking forward to that. Of course, that's a, that's a weak excuse for um, flat characters. But in the case of Euromancer, I think it's a part of the point of the story. Many of the names are, in fact, telling names. Case is supposed to be nothing more than a case. There's one situation in the novel when one of the minor characters, Peter Riviera, tries to ridicule him by creating an, an, an illusion, a caricature of him. And um, he's not able to do that because uh, apparently Case is so devoid any striking features you can't even turn him into a caricature. Um, so he's supposed to be empty in a sense. And the same holds true for, for Molly Millions who was dramatized as a young woman and then gradually turned herself into a machine to escape that pain. The same holds true for the boss Amitage, which as we later on learn is nothing more than a creation by the artificial intelligence uh, Intermute. He is a former soldier guy who, who flatlined it at some point and was pieced together with pieces of machinery and uh, neural conducts. So he's not really a human being anymore. And this, and, and, and the only really human being in the team is um, this um, illusionist Peter Riviera, and he's a sadist. So there's really not one undamaged, unharmed, full-scale human in the whole cast. That's that's true, and that's maybe a problem, because you don't really have a character that's likable. But again, it's, it's part of the, bitter, of the bigger scenario, I think. I mean, usually I really dislike this, oh, well, this character isn't likable, so I cannot identify with the novel. But here I found it that none of the characters were interesting. Case wants to go back to cyberspace. Okay, that is a motivation. What does Molly want? Molly is the worst example for me, really. She's just a tough chick, but she's also sexy and she wears leather trousers. And before we ever see her use her steel fingernails to to fight someone, this badass thing, she has sex with Case. Totally unmotivated. And the sex scene is one of the worst I have ever read. It is That's the epitome of the male gaze. It's so... Just suddenly Case wakes up from a surgery and she's there and he says, oh, why are you here? And she just literally grabs his nuts and says, because I want to fuck you. She doesn't say that, but that's basically what she does. Actually, I thought I had a problem with that sex scene. But I think as Oliver mentioned, it is also described in such a strange way. It is basically devoid of passion, of love of any kind exactly but that doesn't make it necessarily a bad sex scene because in this setting it is just as much part of the program just as much part of the machine they don't have sex because they find each other attractive i mean molly even mentions that that case is not necessarily her type they have sex because this is what you do and case needs a bit of a, a pickup so why not so this adds to this notion of these characters are not really fully grown characters. They are yeah, part of the program, part of the machine, part of the plan. Sex is just a flash thing. It doesn't mean much. But I think even in James Bond, where the sex also doesn't mean much, it felt... 
After the sex scene in Neuromancer, I felt dirty. After that, I thought, oh, this is really icky, I don't want this. And, and speaking of that Molly was traumatized, this is a return to our favorite topic, sexual abuse and rape. And that is also just completely swept under the carpet. She worked in a kind of brothel for years to be able to afford all the surgical alterations to her body. Not any brothel, but a brothel where they gave her um, chemicals so she would forget what kind of gruesome things she did there. Yeah, exactly. But then those meat puppet. Yeah, uh, but then these chemicals stopped working and she suddenly started remembering and she started being conscious. And that is just mentioned, but it's never addressed really you never realize that that has any consequence for her it's just this no because she's of course that's a kind of um, tough girl cliche of course but 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 she's really too tough for her that uh, one, one of my favorite descriptions of her in the novel is uh, when, when she explains that um because of her cyber eyes she's not able to cry anymore and somebody asks her well then what happens when you when you have to cry and she says that her tear conducts have been rooted back into her mouth, and so she just spits. <laughs> That's a great description. I, I agree with that. But I think Jonas has a point to a certain degree. I I don't have that much of a problem, um, but I think for the fact that these characters aren't supposed to be deep or three-dimensional that much, they still have a lot of, let's call it, interesting baggage. Molly is this tough chick, but she had a traumatized past. Case is, as many characters note, a case of, again, no pun intended, of self-destruction. He basically has a but death basically, wish. Basically, this whenever we say he's a case of, or there's this case, and then we're always at no pun intended, that shows that actually that name is rather well chosen. Mm. As you said, it's a, it's a, a meaningful name, and... Yeah, it fits. And while he doesn't have that many character traits, he certainly has a lot of yeah interesting things. He is a cool console jockey. He has a drug problem. He has a dead girlfriend that reappears <laughs> in the cyberspace or in his hallucinations from time to time. So these characters still are supposed to be interesting to a certain degree. And they're supposed to. They just aren't. Well, you already compared uh, your romancer to um, a heist movie. Um, I think that explains most of um, the characters. They are just paid to do the job. They are um, a team forced to team up uh, with each other. They don't really like each other. They are just trying to, to do their jobs as, as good as they can in order to make money, in order, in cases, case, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Case tries to get his uh, neurological damage repaired so he's able to check into cyberspace again. There are many uh, cliches in, in, in the novel that you know from your typical Chandler novel. It, it has a film noir atmosphere to it. You have all these stereotypical cowboy connotations and the, the, the lone wolf in, in, the, in, in the jungle of the city. That's the same mixture that made Blade Runner so remarkable. This, this mixture between uh, film noir and a near future. And you never get to know the tough guy in a detective story. And he always has a dead girlfriend, of course he has. One thing that is also quite divisive, I think, is not necessarily just the characters, but the way they are described. Um, Gibson's language is often singled out as the one thing that drives people away from the novel or his writing in general. What rewards it? 
Or thwarted, exactly. <laughs> what do you think um, about his descriptions or the way the plot is presented? I found really, really interesting the ellipses that Gibson takes chances that certain things are just left out and suddenly we're yeah. at another point in time, at another point geographically, and the reader always has to take a certain moment to just get used to, okay, we're, we're somewhere else now. Something has happened But we don't know exactly what it is. It's maybe not important, but maybe it is. I don't know. I have to get readjusted, basically, to where we are now. That was something that really drove me crazy. <laughs> It's this occultic style, almost, I would say, where you try to create confusion and you revel in the uncertainties. It's great if you want to affect a certain kind of mystery and a certain kind of quality, but it is very hollow. And if there's nothing to back it up, it will not be very enjoyable to read. At least it wasn't for me. I think it was a stroke of genius. Um, and in, in some interview, uh, William Gibson once admitted that basically lots of this omissions in Euromancer are there because he just didn't know how to get from A to B. Um, it was the first novel he wrote, and um, so he just put one theme behind the other without ever explaining how they got from one from from scene A to scene B. On the sentence level, or on on, or on the level of the, the the setting, what was really revolutionary about it is um, that he got rid of all the info dumps that you commonly had in old school science fiction. In a typical science fiction novel of, of, of the 60s or even earlier, um, the plot would be interrupted ever so often so the author could describe his latest fancy innovation like nuclear ashtrays and uh, that follows one <laughs> chapter about the workings of a nuclear ashtray and what Gibson does is he just throws the thing into your face and never bothers explaining them or maybe he gets back to it and explains it about 10 pages later but he really writes about the future as it were already the present and it's not necessary to explain it because the characters already know how it works so why should you describe it only for the reader and i like that device The one thing that I really liked, uh, not just on the sentence level, here and there there are very nice sentences with nice images in them, so they work. But what I, basically the only thing that I enjoyed were the settings. Chiba City, for example, this dirty, rundown, criminal world of people trying to make money in illicit ways, going to bars. Or then the sprawl, this region that used to be the eastern United States, though what happened to the United States, we don't know. Or then this space station. All these settings are really interesting and evocative. I just wish something good would have been done with them. And that's why I think that Neuromancer was so influential with regards to movies, because in a movie you can use all these kinds of settings, of course, but you can show them. And occasionally, even if, though I enjoyed the descriptions of the settings, they ran a bit long. And in a movie, I can just see it. So maybe William Gibson would have been a really good set designer. Who knows? What I like about Gibson's style is his sense of visuality, that you get a really good sense of what things look like. He has a detailed style, but one that is not too much delving into unnecessary detail, 
but it is mainly a style that seems to focus on the surface, but less on interiors. The interior of the characters, it's not that important how certain things came to be as they are. And Oliver, you mentioned that sometimes he just throws things in your face. And I generally like that, really. But I think it is a kind of hit-and-miss tactic. Some things I really liked, this idea of Chiba City, the kind of globalized world that we're living in, even though it is also very much part of the 80s, because apparently it's a post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war world that we live in. The the war is... That, that was another thing that I really liked, and it was part of my whole alternate history approach, that the war is mentioned all the time, and it's very similar to the Second World War. They had to do something with Russia and Finland, but apparently it only lasted three weeks. But uh, it was still very bad. And, and apparently it took place mostly in, in continental Europe, and especially Germany. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I, I always remember the, the radioactive ruins of... Bodden yeah. by cannibals and um, yeah. mutations. So, like, like uh, the mention of Bonn alone that brings back so many memories today. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think that is that is part of my criticism there. That maybe that is just our contemporary perspective, but some things seem indeed visionary, while other things are just ridiculous. And the main problem in that regard, two words, space. Rastafarians. <laughs> that darkness. That is. I, I'm sorry. I can't. I love them. I, love them. I can't take them seriously. <laughs> I can't take them seriously. I'm, is that just because you're a racist, though? It may be. No. Gibson links this idea of the cyberspace to not only escaping the flesh, but he describes it with definitely religious terms. And I think the, yeah. these space Rastafarians are his attempt to add religion to the mix, a kind of spiritualist, animist religion that is more about how you experience things, less about rights or knowledge about the religion. But that just doesn't work for me. The religion comes up at a couple of points in the novel. There's also, they stage a kind of terrorist attack to distract from one of the earlier heists that they pull. And everyone just believes, oh yeah, it's this fanatical Christian sect somewhere from the Midwest and they committed this terrorist atrocity. So religions are considered as something very dangerous. That was something else that I found very intriguing, but then I wish it had been more elaborated on. What part does religion play in this world? Is religion basically something that people are very much afraid of, not because they think it's actually true, but because its acolytes commit horrendous acts of violence? The novel might be critical of um, traditional uh, religions, but I think the um, the spiritual aspects of um, the novel are described in a very positive way, and um, the spirituality um, gets even more important in the two sequels, Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive, where the artificial intelligences are likened to polytheistic gods, basically the, the gods of Haiti, the Loa, which can possess people and, and ride them like you ride a horse. And um, I think this spiritual theme is also linked to the title of the novel, which I wanted to, to talk about at least a, a little bit, because Euromancer is obviously a, a very useful and an interesting made-up word which combines the reading you romancer as opposed to the old romancer 
the Neuromancer, like um, NEU, like something having to do with um, the, the nerves, the neural part, uh, pathways. And of course, it's also a, a pun on, on Necromancer. And then the AI Neuromancer shows up for the first time. He introduces himself with um, the words, I bring up the dead. And, and what he really does is he shows case his dead uh, girlfriend uh, Linda Lee while case himself is dead it, it's kind of um, the traditional motive of meeting the devil in the woods or, or meeting the, the the god Pan which makes you insane every encounter with an AI leads to the character dying so knowing the AI means knowing death and that, that's one of the many examples too of how controlled Gibson's style and his use of words actually is a friend of mine used to argue that um, Neuromancer was full of dead metaphors. And I would contradict that point because the, it's, a, it's a very controlled use of uh, certain metaphors and um, undercurrents. And like, for example, coldness. If you remember the other AI, it's called Wintermute. So everything related to the AIs is described in terms of coldness. There's also ICE, the intrusion uh, countermeasure electronics. Did I get this right? Um, they mentioned what it, ICE stands for. I think... I can't remember exactly. I'm, I'm very sorry for not knowing this on the top of my head. <laughs> but um, yeah, but, 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 they talk about... Basically, it's mentioned once, and for the rest of the novel, they talk about ice. Mm. And, 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 and it makes sense. And you mentioned the Turing police, and the Chandler way of, call, of talking about the police is, of course, talking about the heat. And so it's the Turing heat against the eyes of the artificial intelligence. Whoa! And, and stuff like that really... Okay, I, I, I didn't catch that earlier. A song of ice and fire. Oh, yes. Mm. I, I said, actually, before to Christian that um, I always felt that Sir Wintermute sounds like uh, he's a member of the Night's Watch at the Wall. Uh, let's, let's not get too much into those. No, if you ever do a session about the Song of Ice and Fire, don't invite me. Okay. Actually, I wouldn't do a session on that. Um, but actually, that also brings me to another point, uh, which I find interesting, that at points... I get the feeling that Gibson really leaves that whole notion of techno babble of the cyberspace behind. I mean, that is a common topic associated with the cyberspace, that the possibilities are endless. And there is the famous saying that advanced technology is basically inseparable from magic. And I think to a yeah. certain degree... Neuro Credit goes to Arthur C. Clarke. I think to a certain degree, Neuromancer is fantasy. I mean, we mentioned that there are certain elements from other literary genres. There's the Chandler-esque noir style. There is gothic, definitely, in the description of the Tessier-Ashpool family who created Wintermute and their uh, abode, the Villa Straylights, which is described even literally as gothic. But I think there is a, definitely a fantasy element. And that, on the one hand, may account for this hit-and-miss approach that Gibson just used certain things that he found interesting and, from a contemporary point of view, seemed ridiculous or non-visionary or whatever. But you could read it as a quest story, fighting for something against powers that are much larger than you are. And I think the fantastical element is something that you, you have to take into account here, that the romance part of New Romancer is definitely there. Case may not be a knight in shining armor, 
but it is not that focused on actual technological developments or advances. It's more focused on this notion of what does this mean for human agency? What does this mean for human stories um, in contrast to these yeah, basically divine powers of the AI? There are some really straightforward uh, fantasy quest elements at the end of the novel. As I said, Case is not a knight in shining, shining armor, but still he has to defeat a knight. The, right, the samurai, the ninja, the assassin. Yeah, exactly, and, and he has to beat uh, the black knight in, in, in combat in order to save Molly. And Rivera is a kind of magician with his illusions. Exactly. And coming back to um, to the romantic part, Euromancer has um, quite often been described as postmodernism in science fiction, or what happens if postmodernism hits science fiction, because um, the world described in, in, in the novel is so much out of balance and then out of control, and the characters don't have any direction. The world is very hard to decipher. Another of my favorite descriptions in the, in the novel is the one of... Uh, the 50-year-old Vietnamese imitation of a South American copy of a Walter PPK. So there's, there are no really originals anymore in that world. Call back to James Bond, of course. Of Definitely. Course. And at the same time, the, the characters seem obsessed with getting back to the authentic, to, to the real thing. They, they want to escape this meaningless world and maybe even get back to a greater narrative that lends meaning to, to their lives. And that's the romantic part of the novel. Like in, like in the uh, Shetty quotation, it's the desire of the moth for the star. So they want to escape the world and reunite with a higher state of being, even if it means their own death, the end of their existence. And that holds true for characters like Case, who routinely risk their own death trying to check into cyberspace. But it also holds true for the AIs, Wintermute and uh, Neuromancer, who in the end of the novel fuse and create something new. And this new, again, longs for something beyond, namely Alpha Centauri. So it's all about escaping the boundaries and uh, lose yourself in the quest for something truer, something in, in a spiritual sense more important. Let me give you um, a few more examples of the, the language of Euromancer. One thing we completely forget and we, we shouldn't forget that is, of course, the opening sentence of the novel. Very maybe, famous. Maybe the fame, most famous opening sentence in the history of science fiction. And um, I would say it's in, in the top ten of opening sentences of all time. It just reads, The sky above the port was the color of television, tuned to a dead channel. And this image is so um, evocative and... Um, there's so much in, in, in this image because it goes goes all the way back to the days of um, Oscar Wilde or Usmore and in the, the decadence of the 19th century who were, to my knowledge, the first who called for getting rid of nature and replacing nature with a more beautiful creation. So nature is described in terms of man-made technology. Actually, in the preface to the version of Neuromancer that I read, Gibson himself says that when he wrote this sentence, he thought about a television of his youth. Very, very old-fashioned television that you could actually tune to a dead channel. And by 1984, when it came out, that wasn't really possible anymore. Or definitely the dead channels looked very, very different. So the 
outdatedness of neuromancer is not a problem that has developed over the past 30 years. It was there at the very beginning, and even then it didn't matter. But let's get down to brass tacks. On this podcast, we read great literature and decide whether it's actually any good. Is it? And should our listeners read Neuromancer? In my opinion, don't bother. It is an immensely influential novel. We've named a couple of examples. There's dozens more. And yes, it certainly was important for the development of science fiction. And if you're interested in that, if you want to write a master's thesis or a PhD thesis on science fiction, you need to have Neuromancer in there. But generally, you don't have to read it just to appreciate the things that it influenced. You don't have to read the tale of Amalith to appreciate Shakespeare's Hamlet. You can just read the other works, which might be derivative, but not necessarily worse than the original. So I would give it a miss. Well, in my opinion, which should come to no surprise, you definitely should read the novel. Especially, of course, if you're a science fiction fan, if you're a science fiction fan and haven't read Euromancer yet, it's a shame on you. <laughs> if you're not a science fiction fan and thinking about it, well, if you're only going to read one science fiction novel in your life, I'm not sure if I would recommend Euromancer because it's just as much not science fiction as it is science fiction. But if you're going to read, let's say, three science fiction novels in your life, you should definitely read it. And if you liked it, I would also recommend uh, reading the sequels, Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive. They give you um, a nice background and they, they elaborate a bit on the setting, which is basically what uh, Jonas asked for. And oh, actually, that sounds really good. That <laughs> sounds like a book I would enjoy much more. And they are, um, they are not that long, so um, each of the novels is about maybe 300 pages. And that's it. So it comes down to my opinion. I think in this case, I will have to go with Oliver's opinion. No! <laughs> I mean, not just because of the influential position that Neuromancer has, but because I think it is such a fascinating artifact of that time. This look at cyberspace, at what the future might hold, at how people at that time considered the future of information technology and so on and how that strange mixture of technology and fantasy is expressed i think neuromancer is really really interesting in that regard and while some things may be ludicrous from a contemporary perspective space rastafarians <laughs> the darkness <laughs> i think that the style still helps it after all this time I would actually say don't bother with Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive. While they elaborate the setting and they are, to a certain degree, much more accomplished pieces of writing, they lack this sense of something new, this punk aesthetic that Neuromancer definitely has. So even though both my friends think that you should read Neuromancer, I disagree. Instead, I would recommend that you engage with one of the maybe derivative works, although I'm not sure how much we can consider this derivative since it's from a very different cultural context. I would recommend that you take a look at Ghost in the Shell. It started out as a manga, was turned into a very successful film, a kind of cult film, you could say. I think Ghost in the Shell deals with all the interesting questions that Neuromancer doesn't. What makes someone human? When does an artificial intelligence become human? Also, what does it mean for our humanity if we start replacing our body parts with more and more machinery? And also, it has some very interesting characters. And it has a central female character who are actually 
find very believable and I find her very interesting. It's a cyber chick, naked most of the time. Not naked most of the time. She rides a motorcycle <laughs> as well. Though she is the naked. Cyber chick on motorcycles. Though she is naked some of the time as well, yes. But but those are not the very interesting times, I feel. At least that's what I tell everyone. <laughs> My recommendation is actually still by William Gibson. I think New Romancer has suffered by the time it has passed since its publication. But I really, really like his newer writings. And especially I like what is often called the Blue End or the Big End Trilogy. And especially the first novel in that trilogy, Pattern Recognition. As Oliver has said, Gibson has kind of removed himself from writing science fiction. Now his writing is more a kind of 10 seconds into the future setting. So it's our world with some hyper-realist additions that may seem strange. But actually here, this visionary aspect of science fiction or his writing comes into focus. So in pattern recognition, we have things like alternate reality games, drones... So many aspects that are much more topical, that are much more part of our culture nowadays and may become even more important. I don't really have a recommendation for people who don't want to read, who don't want to read Euromancer, because shame on you. Um, <laughs> and so I'd like to close this with a warning, just stay clear of the Matrix trilogy, because in my opinion, it's the most stupid cyberspace work ever <laughs> conceived. I can definitely agree as far as part two is concerned. I never even bothered with part three. Same here. But I still like the first one because it shows how popular this idea has become and how iconic it may become. And also, there's that lobby scene. Oh my god, it's so badass. So, we had our very first guest appearance. So, again, thank you very much, Oliver, for appearing here and enduring our very unprofessional rambling with uh, lots of gin and tonic. Thank you for bringing uh, blue and pink gin for some cyberpunk-esque gin and tonics. Uh, those were really nice. Though. The blue one is much nicer than the pink yeah, one. Yes. But for our listeners, if you want to hear more from maybe other guests, and if you just want to listen to us rambling on with gin or without gin, you can find us at our homepage, which is outsideofadogcast.com. You can also, of course, write listener mail to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can suggest books that we should read, you can give feedback on the show, or you can simply write to say hello. You can recommend us to your friends. Recommend us to your enemies. Recommend us to your local street samurai, whatever that might be. And Oliver, if people want to follow you on the interwebs or in cyberspace, Ooh, you might cyberspace. say, <laughs> where can I find you? Um, well, you, you can find me in the usual places. I have kind of a Facebook page under my real name. That's how stupid I am. It's uh, Oliver Plaschka. And um, I, I think um, I, my, my Twitter account is probably more interesting. At least I find it more interesting. <laughs> my Twitter name is Oliver Plaschka again, but the account is actually named uh, Navilin. That's N A V Y L Y N. And uh, I have a blog. I have a, I have a whole fucking homepage. Um, um, the URL is uh, Rainlightsnet. Also, Oliver is actually a writer, so he publishes books. 
Um, or cup it one out. What? Cup it one out. No, no, no. Oliver is also an author, so if you enter his name on Amazon or if you go to your local bookshop, you All can... All kinds of strange stuff will show up. <laughs> but also you can find his books there and you should buy them because they are excellent. And we will put the links on our homepage as well. If you want to read something really intelligent by me, um, you can look up my PhD thesis where I elaborate on why I like Euromancer. Okay, I won't do that then. <laughs> so that is it for this episode of Outside of a Dog. Come back in two weeks for our next episodes. And Christian, what will we read in that one? Well, we are going back to the very beginning of this podcast and we will talk about poetry Namely, we will talk about Goblin Market by Christina Georgina Rossetti. Nice choice. Logical conclusion would be doing something about Neil Gaiman. Not Gaiman. No, never Gaiman. Yeah, we should definitely do something because by Neil Gaiman. you your PhD thesis about him. Okay, that's it. That's it. Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. We should do a movie podcast. <laughs> that is our constant temptation, and we are constantly evading it. You're the one recommending movies. Yes, I am. But the crisis been... of literature. Yes, but that's because I'm not as well read as you, because I haven't had as many years as the two of you to read. Shut the fuck up. Because I'm still in my 20s. I'm 25. How old are you again? Go fuck yourself. <laughs>